Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. So I think this realism about the way that God calls people who are fallen, weak, incompetent, broken, who will betray him, who will fall and, and, and repent, get up again, this is very much part of Tolkien's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. The Living Church serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. In the beginning, creation. Millennia pass. Creatures alternately live peacefully and then get it horribly wrong. Long genealogies, the rise of the kings, some evil, some good, battles, prophecies, a savior rides in on a white horse. And in between all these exciting parts, there is lots of daily life. There's lots we don't know. And there's lots and lots of waiting. Is this the Bible? Or is this the Lord of the Rings and the Middle Earth Legendarium? Yes. And it's all chock full of good stuff for Advent. I am so glad that we're so close to Advent, and I'm so glad to present to you this conversation today. J.R.R. Tolkien's own life was also chock full of good stuff for an Advent conversation. And today we're going to talk with one of Tolkien's biographers, Dr. Holly Ordway. Holly is the Cardinal Francis George Professor of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute, which many of you might be familiar with. This is Bishop Robert Barron's ministry. You might know the podcasts or other books that come from the Word on Fire Institute. And Holly is also visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University and a subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. She has two books I would love for you to know about. One is the award-winning Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, and her newest book, Tolkien's Faith, A Spiritual Biography, both by Word on Fire Academic Press, and we'll include a link in the show notes to those today. Advent is a thick time, isn't it? And within that tapestry, we might find suffering or grief. We definitely find waiting, faithfulness, and the mysterious timing of providence. And there's so much to learn from Middle Earth here. 
But we also get in Advent, as well as in Middle Earth, glimpses of what it means to live a good life, good food, a good sense of humor, and divine grace. These are all hidden inside of Advent, Middle Earth, if we have humble enough eyes to find them there. Now, whether Advent is for you like a cozy hobbit hole full of goodies, or more like Denethor's grim tower looking out on an uncertain future, or like some trippy place in between the two that I literally cannot imagine, we hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, this may be the most important question I ask you today. Who is your favorite character in the Middle Earth Legendarium? Oh, see, that's an interesting question because I've loved Tolkien pretty much all my life. And I would say that in my 20s, I would definitely have said Eowyn was my favorite character. And, you know, Shield Maiden, you know, she she's just, she's amazing. But now, comfortably ensconced in middle age, I have to say that I have come to find Sam to be my favorite character. You know, he he just wants to get home to his garden. I <laughs> resonate with that. <laughs> That's part of the genius of Tolkien, isn't it? That he's got so many characters who who have well different ways of being heroic and different admirable characters and different admirable qualities. And I think it's marvelous. It's one of the reasons that the Lord of the Rings and the Legendarium as a whole is has such longevity and such depth. Is that you can you can grow with it and you discover more as you get older, as you have more life experiences. So it's it's very textured and rich. I'd love to start by talking about grief and loss of, oh gosh, so many scenes in The Lord of the Rings. But this one scene where Frodo just breaks down, he and Sam are at the gates of Minas Morgul, and Frodo just breaks down and starts weeping, thinking, I failed. This is all going to come to nothing. Even if I do my part, no one's going to know. What does it even matter? These themes of grief and loss, why do they come up so much in, in Tolkien's work? Well, I, I think this is part of, of Tolkien's great wisdom, really, because if we have to kind of face the fact that this is a realistic description of, of life, you know, we have seasons, hopefully, when we have joy and things are going well, but especially, you know, thinking about this in the context of Advent, one of the things this season calls us to remember is that we're all going to die. This is inevitable. And that's not comfortable, even as a Christian, even, you know, with the hope of eternal life, we still have to pass through that experience and all of the potential suffering that comes with it. And we have to face the loss of those whom we love. And, you know, I I at least find that more difficult than contemplating my own death. Mm. That is something that we have to come to grips with if we're going to have a healthy psychology, a healthy spirituality, a healthy way of of relating to other people and 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 being at peace with ourselves and having a relationship with God. We have to confront our own mortality and the fact that nothing in this world is lasting. Mm. Everything will come to an end. And yes, it will be remade, but I think it's an aspect of the Christian faith that you know, we we get to the resurrection, but we have to go through the cross. And that's something that we don't like. And I think culturally, we try to avoid that. And there's always a temptation to make Christianity only about the hope, only about the resurrection, and somehow forget that there's also, you know, pick up your cross and follow me. 
And Tolkien gets that. And he gets that in large part from personal experience. You know, in writing my biography of him that I've, I've just done, Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography, it's striking how much suffering he went through at the most formative periods of his life. He had lost both of his parents by the time he was 12. Wow. He, he grew up as a Catholic in an environment that was deeply anti-Catholic in early 20th century England. To be a Catholic in the Anglican establishment world meant to be socially marginalized, culturally marginalized, economically disadvantaged, you know, not even having full civil rights. He manages to get through it. And then what is the next event, major event in his life? Well, a three-year separation from his beloved Edith, you know, before he can marry her. And then there comes the Great War, that cataclysm, and he fought in the trenches. And he remarks later that most of his good friends were killed in the war. The slaughter of men his age was tremendous. And he suffered trench fever, so much so that he was declared 100% disabled. It causes bone pain. And during his time of suffering from trench fever, he's hospitalized several times. He lost 30 pounds of weight at one point, which is quite a lot to lose from a man who was not heavy set to begin with. He always had a kind of wiry frame. And in the context of the war, this, the slaughter is so great that especially officers like himself, he was a trained signals officer, they were being sent back as soon as they could patch them up. The fact that he was not sent back is a is indication that he, he really was 100% disabled. And they had him just in sedentary employment because he, he was you know too weak, dizzy, fatigued, in pain to do anything else. He does recover enough to you know carry on his normal life, but it became a, a contributing factor to chronic illness throughout his life. And of course, you know, he never suffered from what we would today call PTSD, what they called shell shock then, but he still carried with him a lot of pretty terrible memories and grief. So by the time you know he's even writing The Hobbit, let alone The Lord of the Rings, he has behind him a very deep experience of suffering, but he also had grown up in a context in which he had been taught how to deal with that as a, as a Christian. He had learned to think through the problem of suffering. He had learned how to put it in the context of the cross. He had a great Marian devotion. You know, he, he calls her consolatrix afflictorum, consoler of the afflicted, in a poem that he writes in the trenches. And so he really had built up some spiritual muscle that allowed him to come through it and integrate this, the spirituality of the oratory of St. Philip Neri, which is what he grew up in as a, at the Birmingham Oratory, had a great emphasis on, on joy and how to have a sense of joy even in the midst of suffering. So all of this helped him to integrate it. And that, I think, is really the root of what we see in the Lord of the Rings and the whole legendarium, he's not, he's not choosing to focus either on just the suffering or on just the joy of the happy ending. He's aware that in this life that we live, these things are often so closely interwoven that we, we can't separate them. Mm, yeah. I'm wondering when you read the Lord of the Rings knowing so much about Tolkien's life, you're, you're one of his biographers. Where do you hear him and see him? Well, this is an interesting question because the answer is, is largely no, I don't see 
his his face so much because aspects of his experiences are interwoven through the whole the whole thing but he's such a gifted writer that the narrative and character fabric is is tight and solid um i think that's part of of his gift but i think knowing his biography you can see some places where you you wouldn't necessarily know it if you didn't know the biography but have knowing that you can see some connections um, so, for instance, and I'm not the first person to think of this. I'm John John Garth, for instance, um, who's written so beautifully about Tolkien and the Great War, notes that the passage of the Dead Marshes is, you know, very much evocative of the trenches of the First World War. You know, the 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 faces submerged beneath the water as they go through. You no, know, don't look at don't look at the faces. Don't look at the Trixie lights, and that whole blasted landscape is very evocative of the of the landscape of of the trenches and then of course he himself Tolkien himself noted that the characters of Baron and Luthien in the larger legendarium have a deep connection to himself and to his wife Edith and he says that she was my Luthien they go through so much difficulty and trauma together they rescue each other. And I think it's notable, you know, Luthien is a very strong female character. You know, Baron gets himself, you know, captured by my Morgoth and Luthien goes out and rescues him. (laughs) And I think this shows, you know, Tolkien has this profound respect for, you know, women's capabilities. And especially, obviously, he thought very highly of his, his wife's innate sort of toughness and her ability to rescue him emotionally, spiritually, relationally. So we see some of that dynamic. But again, it's so woven into the stories that knowing the biography gives you another level to it, but the stories themselves have their own integrity, which is part of his gift, I think. Yeah, yeah. Now, I love that you mentioned a few minutes ago the way that his emphasis on joy and cultivating joy in his own life, I immediately thought of the hobbits and I thought of the way that they tend their gardens, the the kind of very simple pleasures of life, the way that they love, they love trees. They don't like to go too far out of their village. They enjoy food. They enjoy food a lot actually, so that they tend to be a little fat in the stomach as the book says. I'm just wondering, I don't actually know this about Tolkien. What are the things that brought him joy? I know that I know that myth brought him joy. I know that literature brought him joy. Good conversations brought him joy. His family, his children, his his wife, obviously. I'm wondering also about, you know, was he someone who loved a really good roast dinner? Well, you've you've actually touched on a lot of the things that I that I would, that I would have said. So you know, he he definitely was a family man, and C.S. Lewis, who you know didn't get married until very late in life, once called him while still a bachelor. Said Tolkien, oh, "He's the most married man I know," and he was really devoted to his children. And I think this is notable because in the era in which he's raising his children, in you know the twenties, the thirties, the forties, he devotes much more time to them than was typical for. A man of his generation. One of his friends noted that he always made a point of getting home in time to kiss the children, kiss the younger children goodnight. And you know, he he was a busy man and he had lots of friends he could be spending time with, the inklings and, and whatnot. And he certainly was more than willing to stay up until all hours of the night sometimes, you know, talking with them. But to hurry home to make sure he could, you know, say goodnight to his younger children, that says something about his priorities. And then we have the 20 years of 
him writing the Father Christmas letters, writing and illustrating these beautiful letters that are this unfolding story of the adventures, the wacky adventures of the North Pole of Father Christmas and the North Polar Bear. And he does this purely to give joy to his children, taking such lengths as even to like paint little postage stamps as if they came from the North Pole. <laughs> it's just precious. <laughs> now, he wasn't a perfect father. He was the first to admit that, um, but he he considered it to be a high priority and loved to spend time with, with his children. He also had what he he described himself. He said, I have a very simple sense of humor, which even my most appreciative critics find tiresome. <laughs> And he and he always had a love for silly jokes, you know, things like that. And this is something that always used to puzzle me until I did my research for Tolkien's faith and discovered a great link with Oratorian spirituality. Because Oratorian spirituality that he was formed by places a great emphasis on cultivating a sense of humor to keep a sense of humility humor as a way to kind of deflate your own ego, to stay, stay grounded in a, in a difficult world, and also to be joyful in a difficult world. And so, you know, we see Tolkien, even when quite late in life, he's a, he's a professor, he's a, he's a public figure, he's a famous author, and yet he was perfectly content to, you know, dress up as a polar bear for a children's party. <laughs> Apparently, he was a great hit at children's Christmas parties. I would have loved to have seen him. But even other little things, like once he was at a literary society meeting and he pulled out this little shriveled green object from his pocket and said, this is a shoe of a leprechaun. And he stuck with it. And that's that sort of deadpan English sense of humor that he he looks kind of silly. Like here he is, the famous professor, like, oh, I've, I've got a shoe of a leprechaun. And he, and he just sticks with it. But again, this is the kind of thing that helps keep him grounded, helps, you know, so that he doesn't become puffed up with the sense of, look at how important I am. I'm the great public figure. Yeah. And, you know, humor, so I'm thinking of the hobbits again and of Sam and of their love of simplicity and their grounding in, in humility and in the earth. And then on the other hand, I'm thinking of, of Denethor, who's someone who's very learned. And if he ever had a sense of humor, it has sort of boiled down to this bitter irony and it turns against him. And then he, you know, throws himself on a, on a funeral pyre eventually in the end. And that's a really interesting comparison because there's some very interesting ways in which Tolkien, Denethor is not just some, some stock villain. He is a really good example of a great man who has succumbed to the sin of despair. And therefore, what could have been great has become twisted. So, for instance, Denethor is obsessed by the pride of his lineage, that he's this great, the steward, long line of stewards. And that becomes an obsession with him so that he, he actually resents the idea of the coming of the king. Now, we can contrast that to the hobbits, whom we learn have a great delight in tracing their family trees. They have a love for knowing exactly who's the second cousin twice removed of so-and-so. But it doesn't become an obsession with them. So that idea of knowing your knowing your lineage, even being proud of your lineage, is a good thing. But we see in Denethor how it becomes perverted. It's not that it's wrong to be interested in your lineage. It's that he turns it the wrong way. And 
again, we have something that's good, fundamentally good, that becomes twisted. So between Denethor and the Hobbits, we have Gandalf, who is learned and wise and comes from an, an ancient race, more ancient than, than the men of Numenor, but he loves the Hobbits. He understands them. He understands why they're also a great race in their own way. But Gandalf often says these things. I think it's, it's he, I think it was he who called anyone who's fighting against Morgoth or the Necromancer or, or Thank or any, anyone who's involved in this is fighting the long defeat. Someone, and I think it's Gandalf, calls it the long defeat. So Gandalf doesn't succumb to this despair. How? You know, I, this, is a, this is a question I have is in Tolkien's Middle Earth, the wisest characters are constantly expecting to fail. Yet the difference is they're constantly acting in faith. They often say that things are probably hopeless, but they keep fighting boldly and courageously for the good. And I just wanted to read this quote I found this morning that Aragorn says that's so beautiful. Um, he's talking, he's talking with Gimli and Legolas. The fellowship is just broken up. And he says, ours is but a small matter in the great deeds of this time, a vain pursuit from its beginning, maybe, which no choice of mine can mar or mend. Well, I have chosen. So let us use the time as best we may. What makes the difference between a Gandalf, an Aragorn, someone with a courageous heart, and someone like Denethor? And how does this link up with, with Tolkien's own life or his literary influences? Well, here, I think you, you start to see what Tolkien meant when he described Lord of the Rings in one of his letters as a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. And that quote has caused a lot of sort of confusion, in part because people don't follow through with the rest of what he says. He says, you know, unconsciously in the writing, consciously in the revision, and that is why, he says, I cut out all the overt references to religion. So he's acknowledging oh. at the outset that he's cut out all the sort of active sort of religious references or, or instances, almost all instances of religion in Middle Earth. But he says the Lord of the Rings is fundamentally religious and Catholic. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means it's grounded in his own worldview. And in that worldview, you know, he believes that this world will come to an end. We are all going to die and the created world as it as we see it will end. And then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. You know, there there is, you know, there's the resurrection and that worldview is precisely what enables him to express you know, it, through his wise characters, through his characters who are in, in tune with reality as he sees it, this understanding that, okay, what I do right now might or might not be successful as I view success, but it's not my judgment that matters. It's not ultimately up to me. It is up to Providence. Um, and Providence gets a look in quite a lot in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, so the wisest characters, the ones who accept, you know, we must do our bit to participate in advancing the good, knowing that, you know, in the longer picture, it's not in our hands, but it's in the hands of Eruluvatar. It's in the hands of God. And that's the difference, I think, between someone like Aragorn and someone like Denethor, who thinks it's all in his hands. And therefore, if he cannot personally see how it's going to work out 
it won't, he's done. He and his pride would rather be certain of defeat than trust. He's unable to trust. So I think that's an instance of where we're seeing the fundamentally religious and Catholic character of, of the work expressing itself in a very subtle way. Yeah, that paradox of the courageous fight that is fighting the long defeat, knowing that it's the long defeat, knowing that you yourself will die, that you're you're a drop in the stream, no one will will probably remember you anyway and after a couple of generations they certain almost certainly won't. And then Denethor concludes, well what good does it do? And then, you know, let let's just, you know, pour some gasoline on that fire, get it going, boys. Um very bad ending. And that's an evil conclusion that he comes to because what Sauron is doing in a sense is participating in speeding this defeat or speeding this end. So something that's always puzzled me, Holly, about the classical Christian perspective on the apocalypse, on sort of the the end of the world as we know it, as a, you know, great 90s band said, um, is that anything that we do that's participating in speeding the end, which will occur, is actually evil. And that we do the good by resisting the evil that's speeding any of God's creatures toward destruction. Will we all meet death? Yes. But, but if we actively choose to participate with any deconstructive force, then we're, we're at fault. Does, has that ever puzzled you? Has that ever just racked your brain? And Christians get so confused about this too. Like I think of the ecological crisis, for example, and sort of, you know, there will be a, a new heavens and a new earth. So, so why should we get fussed about this one? Let's just do what we want, eat, drink, and be merry. It's sort of like, well, is that participating yeah. with Mordor? Maybe. Yeah, it is, actually. It's a very orcish kind of, kind of attitude. Well, I mean, partly it's because we have to have a sense of humility towards the unfolding of God's plan. Because, you know, in, in his wisdom, he's not given us details about what the new heavens and the new earth are, are going to be like. We know they're going to be everything that is good. Are we contributing to what it will be? What kind of person are we shaping ourselves to be? So the kind of person who says, well, it's all going to end up, you know, destroyed anyway. So why not bulldoze that forest and build a parking lot for, you know, no good reason? Well, that's making your soul a, a sort of more sterile place. It's it's doing something harmful. You're, you're just, you're in participating in, in carelessness and not being a good steward of, of what God has given you, you are actually turning against God. Well, well, where does that end up taking you? Not to a very good destination. So I think there's a sense, first of all, we don't know to, you know, to what extent do our choices shape the world that we will have, you know, Will the trees that we plant, will will the good that we do be somehow, you know, reflected in the new heavens and the new earth? And I reminded, for instance, of Tolkien's um, great story, Leaf by Niggle, in which, you know, the, the painter Niggle, he's he's going through the, the purgative and healing process of purgatory. And in the process, he discovers, he encounters a tree, a living tree, that is the embodiment of everything he always had tried and failed to paint, and it has become now in 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 the afterlife in the next world it has become real and 
that was only possible because Nigel was an artist. He was trying to do this good, even though it didn't seem to be doing any good in in his own in his own time. So I think, you know, this the attitude of well, I might as well do what I like is actually proud and in the in the sinful sense, it's saying, yeah, I know better than God. He'll take care of my mess because I say so. Whereas the attitude of I'm going to be a good steward, you know, even though it will all fall to pieces in the end, that's actually an attitude of humility, which enables God's grace to, you know, to move in us. And I'm thinking, Holly, of a text exchange I was having with a friend the other day. I was working on a project and just totally blew it. And I texted a friend how disappointed I was in myself and in the whole process. And she texted back, you know, well, the Lord looks on you with mercy and he honors your struggle. And I heard that, but also kind of made me mad. And I texted back, I don't want to struggle. I want success. And you know what? Success is good, but also there's there's a rejection of grace there, which I recognize. It's hard, isn't it? As Christians, we just have to own up to the fact that a lot of these things, they sound nice and they are very good, but we also have to own up to the fact that it is hard to live it. Like, oh, it's one thing to say, ah, yes, I will cultivate patience. It's a very different thing when you're sitting in an airport wondering if you're going to make your flight because your flight's delayed. And you think, right, this is not the sort of ideal circumstances to cultivate patience. Oh, right. I see what you're getting at, Lord. (laughs) You got me again. (laughs) Yes, right. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. You mentioned Providence. What's in his books is very subtle. I'd love to hear from you on this and what you make of these hinting references to such and such happened for a reason. Like even if you've just seen the movies and you've never read the books, you'll know this when Gandalf says to Frodo, Bilbo was meant to find the ring. You were meant to have it. What is this X factor, this unseen character in Lord of the Rings and and what do you make of it and how it interacts with various characters? Well, I mean, if 
if you want to get down to the really the the sort of nuts and bolts of it, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God's action in in the world of Middle Earth. And and interestingly, um, Tolkien remarked to his friend Clyde Kilby that when Gandalf refers to being a servant of the secret fire, um, Tolkien said the secret fire is the Holy Spirit. Whoa, 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 whoa. That is amazing. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for telling me that. Yeah, well, he says this, he he says it's late in his life, and he says it to, to his friend Clyde Kilby, who as a fellow Christian, he felt like he was able to talk more sort of directly about some of these, these religious themes in it. Um, it's not something that he brought out specifically, but speaking to a fellow believer, he could say, well, you know, <laughs> the secret fire, it's the Holy Spirit. Right. And then you go, all oh, right. Okay. So Gandalf is, is, is serving him. Um, and so we see, you know, providence acting and, you know, providence expressed in that way, you know, you, it's almost like a background character in the book. You don't, you don't need to really think about it in theological terms. You can almost think of it as, as fate it resonates with, you know, well, the, the idea of fate and the Norse sagas, things like that. But for Tolkien, again, as a Catholic, he's got a very, you know, clear understanding that this is, it has overlap and resonances with the idea of, of fate. He's not rejecting that resonance, but he's approaching it from the Christian direction that it's not random and it's not blind and it is willed, it is oriented towards the ultimate good. And this brings us to one of the most theologically rich scenes in the book, which we know is very theologically rich because Tolkien says so in the published letters. When Frodo gets to Mount Doom, he in fact fails in the quest. The quest is fulfilled but not by Frodo directly, he was not strong enough. The ring at the very end breaks his will, and he says, I will not do this thing. I will not cast the ring into the fire. He, he seizes it and takes it for his own. At the last moment, he betrays the quest. And part of this is, Tolkien explains in the letter, that this is a meditation on that petition in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because Frodo, in fact, has been taken beyond what he can bear. Hmm. Um, and this is a kind of realism again with Tolkien. There's none of this, you know, trite, oh, God won't give you a burden more than you can carry. Well, he did to Frodo, the ring breaks him. And this is a sort of spiritual realism. We pray not to be put in that situation because it's going to be devastating if we are. But the quest is fulfilled. And why, how is that fulfilled? Well, because Gollum then bites off the ring finger and falls into the, the crack of doom. Well, why is Gollum there? He is there because Frodo and Sam, and before him Bilbo, have all exercised mercy and pity. They have not killed Gollum when they had the chance, even though in worldly terms, it would have been a prudent thing to do. I mean, he's trying to kill them. He's trying to seize the ring. And yet, almost against their better judgment, in a sense, they exercise mercy. They allow him to live. And this is really important, again, as part of the fundamentally religious and Catholic element, because there's so much in the Lord of the Rings in terms of flavor and texture, um, even some character elements that's drawn from Germanic legend, from the Norse sagas, all of that, dwarves, for instance, a lot of that, very, very strong influences. 
But we have to recognize that valuing mercy is not a pagan North Germanic virtue. It's specifically a Christian virtue. And by exercising this virtue, when they see no benefit from it, they 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 show mercy to Gollum because it is right to show mercy to Gollum, even if it ends up hurting them, all the way back to Bilbo. And that's exactly what Gandalf points out. It was pity that stayed his hand, and that's why he took no hurt from the ring, ultimately. So it's because he has, in that sense, cooperated with Providence. That's why Gollum is there at the climax, and the quest is able to be fulfilled. So Frodo, in one sense, fails, but by giving everything, he's brought himself to be there in the first place, he has given of himself totally, and he has exercised mercy and pity, he has cooperated with divine providence, and therefore the elements are all in place for a providential fulfillment of the quest. And if it were forced, it would be more like fate than it would be like providence. Because if you think, I mean, fate is something that's immovable, sort of a hard, flat sky. Like it's there, you can't touch it, but it's looking down on you and it already has its mind made up about what's going to happen. And does it even have a mind, you know, or is it just forces? And that's that's fate. But you but can't cooperate with fate. You can't cooperate with fate. That's right. In Judeo-Christian understanding of who God is, providence is relational and strategic. You see providence working things out actively according to the choices of the characters. I mean, Frodo fails, Sam fails, Gollum fails, Aragorn has a moment of failure, Boromir fails. Everybody fails, but yet Aragorn becomes king. Frodo ends up fulfilling his mission and being honored for it, and so does Sam. And then Gollum, we hope for ultimate redemption for Gollum, but he, you know, in his penultimate destiny, he doesn't end up well. We at least know that. But tying it into Advent, I'm thinking again of the Old Testament, Holly, and the way that providence is operating at the very end of the Old Testament in the intertestamental period. You read the history of the kings, they all fail. You get to the last good king of Judah, Josiah, and oh, it turns out, no one had celebrated the Passover since the time of the judges. So everyone has failed in some way. And yet you see the virtue of, of martyrs in the intertestamental period, the virtue of the poor who stay behind in Jerusalem until the land. You see the virtue of those in Babylon like Daniel and, and his friends who are trying to you know be virtuous in this pagan land. And somehow the coming to pass of, of the arrival of the Messiah happens. It, there's just so much resonance there for me, Holly. Is this, has that ever rung a bell for you, These, the kind of relationship between the complexity of the Old Testament moving into the New Testament and the gospel and the Middle Earth legendarium? Has this ever resonated for you? Well, one thing that certainly came to mind as I researched Tolkien's faith was a reminder of how thoroughly Tolkien knew the scriptures. You know, he he was a man who, who read the Bible regularly. He, you know, he, he he could read it in the original languages. He read it in English. He he knew the scriptures, you know, and he, of course he heard them regularly at mass. And it's interesting that you mentioned the intertestamental period because, you know, as a Catholic, the books of Maccabees are in his Bible. And these were much better known to 
men of his day, you know, than they are today, even amongst Catholics. And this picture of the heroic, you know, the heroic Jewish Judas Maccabeus, you know, this is a figure that's really culturally important. And Tolkien knew these books well, and he knew all of the Old Testament well. He knew the book of Judith, you know, with the, with, you know, the heroic figure of her beheading the oppressor and bringing the head, the head back in a bag. (laughs) Like that's, that's quite the female hero there. You know, so he knew he knew the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament really well. He knew the New Testament really well, um, and I think therefore, you're quite right to to be noticing a texture of this um, in all of his legendarium. And I think that sense of realism that just because you know the Israelites are the chosen people of God does not mean that they get everything right by no means. Or the fact that the apostles are personally chosen by Jesus does not mean they get things right, by no means. So I think this realism about the way that God calls people who are fallen, weak, incompetent, broken, who will betray him, who will fall and and, and repent, get up again, this is very much part of his Tolkien's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And to know also that, okay, it may all be a mess, but there's a purpose to it, and God is bringing good out of this. He will, all things will work for good for those who love him. And so we can look, you know, at the way that Tolkien is working through the Silmarillion, which, you know, has been called kind of the Old Testament of of Middle Earth, in in a sense. And you know, it's such a disaster of a story. You know, anybody who thinks that the elves <laughs> are perfect or that Tolkien in, in, intended the elves to be sinless, just have a read of the Silmarillion. Oh my word, Feanor, just stop it. Just stop it, Feanor, stop it. <laughs> we have pride, we have sin. Feanor is a very gifted character. He He's an artisan, he's a great leader of the elves. He could do so much good. And he loves these holy jewels, the Silmarils. This is good. They are things of beauty. They are holy. But then he allows that to consume him, and he wants to to be possessive of them. And he is willing to to kill, to you know, to make terrible oaths that he shouldn't have made, and keep them when he shouldn't have kept them. So he chooses again and again to do what's wrong when he has the opportunity to do what's right. And we see this trail of devastation through through the generations. And Tolkien does talk at various points about how he's working through questions about the misuse of free will. So again, a very much a theological meditation, very much connected to the scriptural story of, of Israel, of, you know, of the apostles, of the history of Christianity. We are given free will. How are we going to use it? often very badly. Mm. And yet God works in his mysterious providence, works through that. And of course, that's the great mystery. We can't actually love God or love anybody if we don't have the freedom to do otherwise. But there's a terrible cost to that. Um, And yet, and yet, that's the perpetual and yet of, of salvation history. And yet God brings good out of what we intended for evil. And isn't that one of the great mysteries of Advent too, that God does it this way, not that way? Yeah. And this, it's interesting you connect this to Advent again in this particular point, because one of the things that quite moved me when I was doing research for, for Tolkien's faith was realizing that 
Mabel Tolkien died not long before the start of Advent. So Tolkien and his younger brother, they're bereaved. They're now orphans. They're alone in the world. And, and immediately they move into a liturgical season that, that embraces loss and yet says, but wait, you know, there will be a resurrection that both and. And I, I wonder, you know, if perhaps that had a, a real impact on Tolkien's spirituality, this move, immediate move liturgically into a season that was so perfectly suited in every way for the crisis of his life at that moment. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's exactly the kind of kind of way that he would have thought about Providence, you know, yeah. working through this. Well, for listeners who are who are priests or other clergy who are Christians in leadership who are teaching, you know, they're, you know, whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with right now, however you're entering Advent, I just think that that Tolkien's work are such a great reminder that there will be a return of the king, there will be a remaking, there will be a you know, Gimli even refers to awaking of, of the ancestors. They will awake, you know, and waiting on Providence to do these things means to work in the mess in the meantime. I just hope that this conversation has been an encouragement. Don't be Feanor, don't be Denethor, but you're probably going to be Frodo or Sam. Don't be Gollum maybe, but you're probably going to be Frodo or Sam or Aragorn or, you know, someone who blows it. You will be, but, um, you know what the the cracks of Mount Doom will close someday. Would you mind just just telling me, Hobbit, wizard, dwarf, elf, human, and or yearning, which one are you? Oh, I think I would I would have to to go for Hobbit. And you know, Tolkien once said, "I am myself a Hobbit in all but size," and I'm a little closer to Hobbit size than Tolkien was. Uh, but I think that that love of home and love of good food and love of gardening, I, I think, are very very Hobbit-like characteristics. I would go for that. Excellent choice. I've been speaking with Dr. Holly Ordway today. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church. In two weeks, stoke the fire, put on your slippers, pour out that hot beverage, and grab the cat or quilt of your choice. It's a cozy Christmas episode with some of our favorite Yuletide conversations of years past. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you at the start of another Advent season. Peace. Peace.